Hello, this is Eric Brickmont, host of Nerds on History, part of the Nerdonomy channel. If you guys like the podcast that you're hearing on Nerdonomy, please head to our website, nerdonomy.com, and click on the merch link. You can find some great t-shirts inspired by our podcasts and some awesome nerd gear. Go ahead and support us, because, quite frankly, we need the help. Please! Thank you! Sound check. Sound check. Testing, one, two, three. Sound check. Sound check. Check, 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 check. Check, one. Hey, Eric. Yeah, Brian. Did you know Alexander the Great was actually a major practitioner of yoga? What? Yeah, totally, because he conquered India, right? So there was, when he was conquering there, there was this cultural fusion. He happened to pick up that practice that they were, they were doing. Really? No. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. Hey, Eric, you know, it's a shame that we really haven't had a chance to talk about your wealth of knowledge into ancient Egypt. Um, Given that it's seasonally appropriate, I've been dying to ask you some questions about mummies. How do you feel about that? Uh, you, you know how I feel about that. I, I love mummies. Mummies are very uh, near and dear to my heart. So mummies all start with ancient Egypt, right? Well, that's what one would assume, right? Uh, mummies from Egypt are probably our most well-known, most iconic uh, idea of a mummy when it, when it comes to mind. But reality is uh, the ancient Egyptians were not the first. And there were many other cultures throughout history, throughout time, who have been practicing mummification, uh, both in its kind of natural form when it was discovered accidentally, uh, and then taking that and evolving it into an actual practice, into something that was designed and intentional. uh, And it was not the Egyptians who were first. No. Really? Uh, So who were? Well, to do that, you'd have to actually go and look to Peru. You're kidding me. No, absolutely. So the the mummies of the Chinchero culture in Peru. The Chinchero? The Chinchero culture. Okay. uh, To me, that sounds like a dish you'd get at a restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) This is not something you would want to eat, no. (laughs) Uh, Desiccated remains generally don't make for very appetizing meals, although you never know. Uh, Human jerky? No. Human jerky. Oh, Brian. (laughs) No. No, too much? You took it there. I took it. I did take it there. It's okay. One of us had to take it there, and you took it there. It's better you than me. <laughs> uh, but no, actually, we're, we're looking at uh, about 5,000 BC. So we're talking about about 7,000 years ago. Wow. Uh, the very first intentional mummies in the world that we know of uh, were created by this culture, who, like pretty much every other culture who utilized mummification, uh, would have discovered it quite by accident. Huh. So uh, there are several areas in Peru where the environment is extremely dry. And in fact, there is no drier place in the world than the Atacama Desert, uh, which is the literally the driest place you could find. And it is no shock or surprise that you know eventually the, the people of that area would come across you know, the remains of somebody who had been buried in the ground. That ground had been disturbed and moved. And as a result, they had found the remains of this corpse, which was naturally dried out, naturally mummified. Uh, in fact, that's what mummification really is. You know, it's it's a desiccation of remains. So this is not the common conception of a wrapped corpse. Not yet, but it would be, and it would be very soon. In fact, the inspiration 
from this event, from finding these remains, led the Chinchero people to go ahead and develop their own form of mummification, a natural or an unnatural form of mummification, so to speak, uh, which mirrors in many ways the, the ancient Egyptians and their mummification practices, uh, but predates them by you know, almost uh, almost 2,000 years. So what were the earlier techniques they would use for this kind of a thing? Well, there's a few different types of, of mummies that come from that time period. Uh, the black mummy technique, for example, which dates from about 5,000 to 3,000 BC, involved actually dismemberment of the body, uh, cutting it up into pieces, the, separating the, the limbs from the torso and the head uh, from the torso. Wow, okay. Uh, and then actually embalming, so the removal of the internal organs. They were taken out. Uh, the skin itself was then heat-dried and treated, so uh, not unlike... Um, well, kind of referencing what you were talking about earlier, like 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 preserving food, like drying fish or, or or jerking a meat. It was as gruesome as that kind of sounds associated with a human being. That was more or less so they the would practice. Pretty much disassemble the entire body, yes. and then preserve the parts of the body. They, they didn't keep the body whole at all. Well, no, they did. They they put everything back together when they were done, but uh, they removed it in order to dry each piece more or less individually and then return everything back together and that's actually funny because to make a really odd connection to that in cooking uh you the the more you cut up food the quicker it cooks because it's less surface area that has to uh the heat has to touch so it makes physical sense yeah and when it comes down to the the human body itself you are racing against time because you have a situation where this body will instantly start decaying as soon as as soon as that person is dead you know cellular death takes hold the body starts to decompose, and if you don't work against that time, you're not going to have what you want, which is essentially a person that looks more or less like they did when they were alive. That's kind of the end goal, right? Right, and so how would the drying process create that? Because it sounds like this is a pretty drastic thing that they're doing. Well, imagine a body left open to the exposure, to the elements, right? What happens to it? Well, it depends on the environment. Um, if it, you're talking about like the environment we have in Northern California, well, think would, about the internal environment of a body, right? We are made up mostly, of water. Yeah. So the water would start to f- basically flow outward and everything else would, in a weird way, it would look like it was starting to melt. More or less. You kind of expand and you bloat first because the gases in your body kind of expand everything. And then you start to kind of collapse in on yourselves and your tissues begin to, uh, be eaten away. And part of that is by insects that are being drawn to your body. And by the bacteria that's also being created by the remaining water that's inside your body. <clears throat> All really bad things. Those are things that you did not want to happen if you wanted to preserve a body and make it look like it did when it was alive. Eventually, if you left it there and exposed long enough, it would skeletize. And that's what they wanted to avoid. I see. And so that's the whole point of mummification across cultures around the world uh, is to try to make them look as human as possible. I see. So they would never look... 100% like the living being. They would look like a more of a dried version of it. Yeah, the well, considering being. they were completely cut apart and then put back together again, it's yeah. kind of hard to <laughs> to achieve that. You sure. know. However, I mean, they made as many attempts as possible to get to as close uh, as possible at that time, including, as gruesome as it sounds, actually removing the person's skin mm. and then reapplying it later. Wow. Uh, and then using uh, sea lion skin, actually, as, as kind of a, a filler for places that didn't quite work well or they needed to, to cement things in. And I take it that came from the fact that those animals were nearby? Yes. They were they were relatively near the coast, despite their, their extremely high elevation. They were able to get kind of down into that area and, and get what they needed for that. Okay. Um, 
pretty incredible. I mean, th- and this is something that's going on 7,000 years ago yeah. uh, and predates the ancient Egyptians' uh, attempts at it and in a really very sophisticated manner for, for, that, for that fact. Uh, and it would continue to evolve and change over time. And what is actually not uncommon with mummification around the world, the techniques actually really uh, kind of um, de-evolved, if you will, up until about the 19th century when they kind of took this drastic, huge step right, forward. with the dawn of modern medical science, yeah. Yeah, because uh, eventually the chinchero mummies would also uh, use a different technique. It's called the red mummy technique. And this was very prevalent from about 2500 BC to about 2000 BCE. Mm. And this technique uh, resolved more around, again, focusing on the drying, not so much of the, uh, of the removal of the body parts anymore. The body was still more or less whole. Uh, the internal organs were still being removed and embalmed. Uh, but then what you found is that the the skin was actually being cut and then kind of stuffed at this point to kind of retain its its shape and likeness. And this is actually a technique that the ancient Egyptians themselves also used uh, later in their, their mummification history. And it's kind of interesting that eventually they would kind of parallel one another and you kind of came to this logical conclusion both times from all this practice and making all these different mummies. Uh, as to as to how it was to make them look as human as possible. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. And then eventually, as the technique died out, mud coating, which was placed on the body, kind of replaced all the elegance of this earlier time period and all the care and attention that went into drying out the bodies. Now the corpse was simply covered with mud. And if you've ever had like a like a mud bath, you know, like at a spa or something like that, not that I ever have or anything, but from my understanding, it extracts moisture from the skin and replaces it with its own kind of minerals. And this is the same practice that's kind of going on, but on a much more drastic level. So as the body is decaying, it's being replaced by the minerals from the mud, which is having a, a preserving uh, technique, but, um, how effective was that though? Not terribly effective, not nearly as effective as it was in the earlier periods where they removed all the moisture altogether. So the body was still decaying underneath and, uh, yeah, you know, it it was more so to retain the shape of the body during like the the burial practice during the funeral. Yeah. Uh, not so much for the long-term preservation, like you find with the mummies much earlier in their history. Gotcha. So is there any, were there any cultures that practiced this early mummification between the Peruvians and the Egyptians? Uh, to the level that these cultures did, not really. Okay. Uh, you do find mummification from around the world. And I, we're talking about almost every country on the globe has some sort of mummy in some place or another. And by mummy, what you're really talking about is some sort of preparation for burial. Not necessarily... That and just the preservation of the body through either natural means or through artificial. So in in a way, almost modern embalming is a form of mummification. Oh, absolutely it is. And it's considered mummification. We may not use the same terminology because modern embalming techniques don't focus so much on the drying out of the body, which is right. very characteristic of our of the earliest attempts at mummification. Right. That's kind of where the word kind of get ties into. Speaking of which, the origin of the word mummy. I was about to ask you, actually. Good. Uh, it, it's derived from the Arabic word uh, mumia. And mumia essentially was in reference to bitumen, uh, which is a substance that was used in mummification techniques from areas within the Near East, primarily in the areas of Mesopotamia. Uh, and so it's actually a, a Persian word is what it kind of comes to us. It comes to us from Farsi. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it parallels Mumia? in Arabic as well. Yeah. Mumia. Mumia. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of obviously where 
Mummy gets its name from. It's not really much of a stretch of an imagination to, to see how those were pulled together. No. But it's interesting because just thinking about the phonetical sound of that, I think of myrrh as mm. well. And myrrh, which we all know of is from, from the, the uh, nativity story, but myrrh was a first century, um, for lack of a better word, ointment that you would use to rub on a corpse. Right. It wasn't so much for preservation techniques. Yeah. It, is, it, is a, uh, it is a sap. Yeah. Uh, it's a tree sap, and when it hardens and crystallizes, Mumia it's actually... or myrrh? Myrrh. Okay. Uh, and then it's actually ground up at that point. It was used more commonly for incense in the t- time period than anything. But it was used as an anointment for, for burial practices throughout the Near East. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll save that for the Christmas episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we, can, we can incorporate mummies in the Christmas. Why not? Yeah, why not? It's yeah. kind of morbid, but then again... You'll find, as you'll find out. So is the history of Christmas. So is the history of Christmas, exactly. (laughs) Um, Uh, Continuing with what we were talking about. So you, why don't we just jump to Egypt at this point? Sure. Cool. Absolutely. So what were the earliest forms of Egyptian mummification? So Egyptian mummification, some of the first attempts at uh, creating an artificially mummified corpse happened at around 3,500 BCE. Right in that time period there. So about 5,500 years ago. So about halfway between the Peruvians and what we know of. Right when the right when the Peruvians were phasing into a different form of mummification is when the Egyptians started picking up the technique themselves. Gotcha. Um, Again, through, not through, obviously because they're so far apart, no connection, just... Mongoose equation. Mongoose equation, right. So... What's the, what? There's a term you use for that. I can't can't remember for the life of me. Uh, cross cultural parallel development. Cross cultural parallel. So through cross cultural parallel development, mm-hmm. they just happen to have both discovered the process themselves. Yeah, and it do uh, mainly because of their environment. They had similar, very yeah. similar ones. Uh, the Egyptians, of course, lived out in the desert, and when you started burying your dead and then began expanding your settlements and started building a civilization, you obviously moved out into those areas areas that were once off limits, that were once burial areas moved the sand, found the remains, and again, they discovered, you know, through natural means, these people had been dried out and desiccated and and preserved. And the Egyptians, however, developed a much more um, complex religious ceremony around mummification. Because you had said originally in a previous episode that they actually tied it into the mythology, that, um, that Isis was the first one to actually create mummification through Osiris, right? Correct. I remembered something. That's well amazing. done, sir. Well done, sir. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you, professor. <laughs> um, absolutely, yeah. And we we find the the earliest mentionings of a mummy in the pyramid texts of Egypt, uh, and it's some of the oldest collections of religious writings. And obviously, by this time, we know that mummies were already being made, and so there had to have been a much earlier connection connecting that mythology. We're going back, you know, hundreds of years before the pyramids were being built. Wow. So, okay. you know, so very important. So, which is funny that you bring up the pyramids because, of course, we immediately associate mummies with the pyramids because that was their, you know, their, home uh, for lack of a better word. Yeah, their really, final resting really place. Really, tomb. It was a tomb. It was. Uh, I mean, there are some debate about that about some of the earliest pyramids and how they were associated with the actual burial practice. If it was in fact a tomb or not, I, I am of the believers that it was, despite the fact that uh, well, this part of it was right because they had yeah. multiple chambers. Well, well, that's where the debate comes in. Right. With some of the earliest pyramids in Egyptian history, including the Great Pyramids, the ones that we see at Giza, there are some who suggest that they were not, in fact, tombs at all, but were associated with some other practice and ritual that, re- that dealt with renewal and rebirth and was associated with other ceremonies that happened yearly. 
And it just so happened that they, they would stick a, a pharaoh in there once he had passed away. Well, no. I mean, there are some who suggest that uh, the, the pharaoh's final resting place was never even in those pyramids. I am not of that vein. Okay. I, I am of the belief that, like with Egypt's first really well-constructed pyramid, of course, the, the Pyramid of Zoser, we find actual human remains in there. It, it seems very intentional that this was a burial place for the pharaoh. And which one is Zoser? Zoser was a pharaoh of the Third Dynasty. He was kind of the the father of pyramid architecture. Uh, he is, however, also associated with another very famous uh, figure from history who is very indirectly associated with mummies these days, thanks to the movies. Perhaps you can guess who I'm talking about. Emotep? Yeah. Oh, my God. I can't believe we brought it home. That's awesome. Okay. <laughs> so for those who don't remember uh, the movie The Mummy, it'd be hard if you didn't because they've made it like a couple different times. And we've made it me, so many times. Absolutely. So the... Boris Karloff original version, mm-hmm. which was remade in 1999 with mm-hmm. Brendan Fraser, was about the high priest Imhotep, right. at least in that story. Was he actually a high priest, first of all? He was. Okay, uh, so. He was a jack of all trades. Imhotep is actually one of my favorite figures from Egyptian history. He's kind of an, uh, an idol of mine, if you will. Uh, he had a very important role in the country in that he was the vizier, which was kind of like the vice president. Right. Or, Actually, let's compare it like the president and a prime minister. Well, he was so in, in any monarchy, the the grand vizier or the vizier was a highly regarded advisor to the point where he almost could make decisions in place of the monarch. And that's exactly what the vizier in Egypt did. Yeah. Uh, they were in charge of the administrative day to day tasks of the country. Whereas, it was like a COO. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Yeah, and then the the king, the pharaoh. Kind of the CEO in this sense was more of the spiritual embodiment of the entire country, and of course gotcha. determined its fate and and had complete control over where yeah. it was going to lead. T- to make another cultural parallel, it'd be like the emperor and the shogun. Almost. Yeah, perfect, exactly. Yeah. We yeah. see it paralleled throughout history. Yeah, um, but Imhotep himself was well renowned. He was so beloved of his people. He was the guy who was in charge of designing and building the final resting place for his pharaoh. He is the one who constructed and designed the, the, the Step Pyramid. He truly, actually, I should, I should step back on some of my words for a moment. He would really truly be considered the father of pyramid architecture, not Zoser. Zoser was simply associated with it by association. So truly, yeah, Imhotep, a man of many, many talents. He was actually recorded as not only being a vizier, but as a high priest, as a scribe, as an architect, as an astronomer. He had all these different roles under his belt. And some people speculate he may have actually even ruled as pharaoh. I mean, there, there are some suggestions that he may yeah. have after after Zoser's death. Well, now I have to go, I have to ask, I have to debunk the, the, the myths behind the movie then, because first of all, was he even mummified? That's, that's the big one. Oh, I'm sure he was. A person of his uh, social standings at the time, even though it was still primarily only the pharaoh and his, and his you know, family that were being mummified, it is very likely that he his remains were mummified. Okay, so plausible. Mm-hmm. Plausible. Minus the whole magic aspect of it. Right. Right? We'll, we'll, of course, ignore that. I never saw the original Boris Karloff film, but in the, the more recent version, the reason why he was mummified was punishment because he tried to kill the pharaoh. And Eric has given me a handshake, so that's totally false, it sounds of like. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I so mean, it just created for dramatic purposes. Yeah. Uh, that's not to suggest that there were not attempts on the pharaoh's life in Egyptian history. Of course there were. I mean, it was it was like any other culture and civilization. There were going to be power struggles. But in this situation, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Okay. Yeah. He, well, he was a enough. hero. He was deified. He was one of the only people besides an actual you know, ruling pharaoh in Egypt to be considered a god. 
Uh, And during the Greco-Roman period of history, he became associated with the Greek god of medicine. I mean, his Get talent. Out. Yeah, his talents just surpassed the generations and and went and cultures. It sounds like yeah, too. absolutely. Wow. And here's a, a singular figure in Egyptian history who who achieved that. Wow. Uh, yeah, by no means the the Imhotep of the it's, mummy movies. It's it's almost like they're cheapening his contribution to history by making him into a movie monster. Uh, yeah, I mean, really, it's it's kind of sad because now from now on, uh, you know, you know, I used to work in a museum. Yeah. And for those of you who don't listen to the show or haven't listened to it before, I used to work at an Egyptian museum. Shocking, I know. Yeah, you were docent for many years. I was docent for six years, and I was involved in in uh, higher levels of the museum for about four years. Yeah. And um, you know, I don't know how many kids I had on my tours who would come yeah, up to me and say, "Did they really cut their tongues out?" And did they really do this? And did they really do that? And it was like, no, they didn't really do any of that. But it's fun to watch on on a movie. And at least you got kids to come into the museum. Sure. And so then at that point, I could re-educate them. But for all those folks who didn't come to the museum, who didn't get a chance to go on my tour, just setting the straight, setting the record straight right now, Imhotep was badass. Okay. He was awesome. All right. And not a bad guy. I take you at your word. Um, and it's good. In a weird way, it almost serves a function. The, the miss steps that the media propagates yeah. about history forces people to want to learn more about it and then they learn the real deal yeah and i mean yeah. it's a two it's a double-edged sword right you know there's going to be those who simply assume and and never try to clarify and then there's those who like you mentioned go out and want to learn a lot more and and end up learning something cool yeah totally that's yeah. great now to bring this back onto the topic here so uh we had gone off quite a big tangent back to egypt back to egypt in fact let's let's go to the old kingdom real quick okay and that's the time of, of imhotep and zoser and the pyramids okay. and first from what, being built in the grand timeline of history what frame of time are we talking about with the old kingdom we're talking about like uh 3200 bce and around there is kind of where well no excuse me that that's the pre-dynastic period like 33 3, is the is the start of the traditional Egyptian period. The Egyptians didn't make any of these distinctions, by the way. This is all stuff that we have thrown in after the fact. They saw it as one unending period of time. And then that leads us into the early formative period, which is where you see the first attempts at mummification. And then that leads you up into into the Old Kingdom uh, in Egypt. Okay, when did the Old Kingdom end? I think that's the part I'm wondering. So about 2600 BCE is when it begins, and then it kind of peters out around 2100 BCE. Cool. Awesome. But like I said, the Egyptians themselves looked at this time period as being unbroken. We make the distinctions these days based on architectural changes, based on mummification techniques, in fact. So during the Old Kingdom, mummification was a lot more simple. Some of the earliest attempts at mummifying actually used a a plaster that was applied over the body. uh, Hmm. And it was believed that this would have some sort of preservation technique. And while the body began to decay inside, not unlike our friends the Chinchero mummies who used the mud uh, packing technique, the physical features of the individuals actually were imprinted and remained. And so we have these essentially, for lack of a better word, casts of ancient Egyptian faces that uh, that have been preserved and saved to us. Oh, wow. And that's even more, that's fascinating because you're literally looking at an inverted face of what of a real person who once existed. Yeah, exactly. And that's really cool. Yeah. And they're and they're very eerily. I mean, they're they're so eerie when you're looking at them because you're you're looking into this person's face, and even more so than when you see a, a well-preserved Egyptian mummy, which is uh, still very very lifelike in its appearance. Mm-hmm. Those early techniques eventually gave way to the use of salts that were used to dry out the body. Okay, uh, a salt by the uh, name of natron, 
And it's like uh, sodium bicarbonate and, uh, you know, essentially baking soda and salt mixed together. It's very, very dry, very absorbent. And there was a very strict practice that developed out of, out of the Old Kingdom that led into the Middle Kingdom, which was kind of the heyday uh, of Egyptian literature and, and cultural practices and the, the real birth of the Osiris cult, who himself, again, was a mummy like we've talked about. And so there's a lot more attention now being applied to the mummification technique. And now it became available to a wider group of people. Whereas originally it was only for the pharaoh and his family and maybe some of the most revered people of the uh, in the, his administration. Hmm. Now in the Middle Kingdom, there was less power associated with the pharaoh and more power associated with local you know, nomarchs and governors and ruling bodies of particular areas of Egypt. They themselves and their families were now also being mummified. Right. It became more of a middle class practice now too. Almost. We're not quite there yet. It's so still so extremely still exclusive. High, so we're still high class, but we're not. But we're beyond the royal family. We're beyond the royal family. Now now okay. we're just within the most wealthy people of the country. Okay. And that would actually continue into the, into the new kingdom, right? The time of King Tut and uh, the empire expanding and becoming a, a real uh, powerhouse uh, in the ancient world. The kind of iconic Egypt that a lot of people associate with. And mummification, again, evolved and became much more well done. The brain was now removed. Uh, through a rather gruesome technique where they would take a, a large rod, place it up the left nostril, then use a, a mallet or hammer to break a bone behind your eyes called the ethmoid. It's actually a group of bones. And this leads from there up into the brain cavity where you can then take um, some tools and use it to mix around the, the brain. And if anyone else is having the same expression that Brian is right now, I apologize. <laughs> I know I it's am, a little I gruesome. I am definitely doing a facepalm right now. Yeah, I tend to yeah. get a little desensitized to it when you're exposed to it no, for as I long know. as you have it's, it. Yeah, very graphic, but that's... But that's what they did. And the brain, which, you know, is more or less the consistency of gelatin, just kind of falls apart and then would, would, would drain out through the nostrils. Yeah, good times. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, yeah, they just, you know, scramble things about and then, yeah, good times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think my point is the level of detail that went into this now was was unparalleled by any other culture. Right. You know, the, the left side of the body to the Egyptians was very sacred, very important. It was the side in which your heart tends to kind of fall towards, right? The way that your heart is designed, even though it's more or less in the center of your body, it kind of moves off towards the left. So the the, the muscles that pump the blood in your heart, you feel it more prominently on the left-hand side. All of these things led to the left being considered very important. Uh, not to say that they were all registered Democrats, but more so that they, they simply had a, an affinity for the left-hand side of the body. And an incision would have to be made on the torso, on the left-hand side, and from that single incision, every other internal organ inside the body would be removed. Wow. They had just gotten this precise due to trial and error and error uh well they knew that that that's really all you needed to do was to go into one place that where you could really honestly if you if you took a measuring stick from the point where you made that incision and then brought it up to your heart which is the furthest most organ the heart and the lungs it would be essentially the length of a human arm oh oh okay yeah yeah <laughs> so that's all you needed to do was get yeah well, there. let's avoid a second face palm and just, i think we can all kind of get the uh we get the idea i think from there but yeah these organs would be removed and then four of them however would be saved in the body 
not in the body. No, they'd be removed, mummified, and then buried with the body. So outside I know the heart of the was one. No, that's no. what everyone assumes. Really? The heart was always left alone. In fact, very few times was it ever exhumed and mummified and then even replaced back into the body. Because they believed the heart was the actual like gateway into it was the home of your soul right and to damage that or to destroy it or to accidentally mishandle it could lead to that person no longer existing yeah Yeah. exactly yeah but the lungs the liver the intestines and the stomach would all be saved uh and they would be mummified separately in a very similar technique to the rest of the body and then they would be kept and stored in uh jars Uh, we call these canopic jars and uh the canopic jars were associated with deities themselves in fact these each of these organs was represented by one of the four sons of horus so you had uh daumatef krebsneferu uh happy ironically happy was one of them and imseti and these okay. were the <laughs> i just got this seven dwarves image in my head but that's okay. okay and so these were the the protectors of these internal organs and they they themselves would be placed uh usually along with the body in, in, a, in a separate burial uh container a chest and would the jars have those Images of those gods. On yeah, the, they would, and they were okay. represented as as uh, three animal heads, and then one of a one of a human. Gotcha. Not always. Sometimes they were represented entirely in, in a traditionally human form, but um, you know these were very important organs for obvious reasons. You know, through the Egyptians' advanced sense of anatomy, based on all the mummifications they had done, and I mean, we're talking about a lot of mummies being created. You know, I, I don't know what the actual estimation is. I don't know if anyone could really tell. But throughout all of Egyptian history, it's got to be close to somewhere to, you know, it, as exclusive and expensive as it was, hundreds of thousands of mummies had to have been created. Human mummies we're talking about, not even animal mummies. That's a whole other topic I'll get into in a little bit. But they had this opportunity to really examine the human body far more so than any other culture in ancient history, and learn so much more about it. And so they understood that the lungs were breathing organs, and that the, the food inside a stomach, obviously, is where the food would go to so when they you ingested it. had a, a better understanding of anatomy than most ancient cultures had. Superb understanding. I mean, we're talking about, they, they, they knew about stuff that, you they know. They just didn't know what the brain did, unfortunately. That's right. They considered yeah. the brain actually to be the source of mucus and blood. Yeah, that's all they knew. And yeah, so, so they didn't really think it was all that important, so they threw it away. Well, four out of five ain't bad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if you think about it, your heart, which is a lot more impressive organ, it made more sense. Because if you could feel your pulse, right, you could feel your you life You felt like that was the energy of life, probably. Flowing yeah. through your entire body. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, I can understand that logic. That yeah. It's a very intuitive yeah. Uh, way of thinking about it, yeah. Now, as part of all of this, of course, the drying has to come into play, right? So once they've removed the internal organs, now the body is, is completely covered in this natron salt, which would eventually itself kind of clump up and absorb moisture, so it would have to periodically be switched out. And so there was a whole uh, cast of people who were mummifiers, who were associated with this practice, who would be with the body for anywhere from about 60 to 90 days. Um, wow, it took that long. Yeah, I mean, it was a very involved process. It usually took about two months. Um, and the these people, um, oh man, some of them had some, some pretty interesting jobs. Um, <clears throat> the person who was responsible for drawing the line that would eventually become the incision to remove the organs uh, had a very simple title. His name was The Scribe. And it was actually kind of a rotating shift, we think, because he had a really unfortunate result of doing, or excuse me, actually, I'm jumping ahead of myself, sorry. The next person had the really unfortunate job. He was called the Ripper Upper. <laughs> Literally, that's what it translates into, is the, the slitter or Ripper Upper. And it was his job, after the line was drawn, 
to come on in with a sacred blade made of obsidian, very sharp, make that cut, and after doing so, run away as fast as possible because all of his other fellow embalmers were there with stones who would be pelting him with stones and swearing at him and chasing him out of the room. Why? Well, the body was still extremely sacred. So even though they were preserving it through these uh, actions, cutting into a dead body was still considered sacrilege. And so even though it was kind of his job, he had to be ceremonially punished by having th- uh, stones thrown at him and, and calling him mean names. Well, I imagine there were quite a few wrecks for that. I'm <laughs> sure afterwards they went out and got a beer, you know, went and had dinner. They Assuming probably, probably he wasn't bludgeoned by a, a rock. No, no, yeah. this, was, this was all ceremony. So I'm sure the, the stones themselves were small. I, I don't think they were trying to hurt him intentionally unless they really, really hated the guy. That, that would make a, <laughs> a very hilarious comedy sketch. Just saying. That would be really cool. That would be That would be really funny. Yeah. Okay, so what were some of the other roles that would be in? Well, essentially, once the body was dried, now it had to be wrapped. Uh, and, th- and I'm actually glad you asked that question, or you brought that up, because I wanted to ask you, mm-hmm. um, when did wrapping become part? Because you said it was plaster for a while. When did wrapping become the, the Plaster ML? was one of those very brief experiments. It lasted a very short time. Wrapping then re- quickly replaced it afterwards. And why, why wrapping? What was so It just made more cool? sense. Uh, when it came to actually protecting the body and preventing it from being... Uh, harmed by insects keeping it from uh, moving too much on its own the weight of the body kind of falling apart and then pulling pieces apart and destroying the body it made sense to have a binding something to wrap and keep things together Um, and that we know happened very 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 early because of the remains of mummies that we have found and because of its association with osiris who himself was mummiformed who was wrapped in linen wrappings and when we do linen wrapping that's what the actual term is the mummiform Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, if you if you see a god that's wrapped, it's a mummiform god. Gotcha. Yeah. So the wrapping was extremely important, and in some cases they went way overboard. Um, I'm going to try and find a picture of it while I'm describing because I want to get your reaction on it. Okay. Generally, no more than twenty to maybe thirty yards of linen would actually be required, which is still quite a bit in of its own. Uh, but there was it's a mummy. Feet, yeah. yeah, there was a mummy in the British Museum, however, who had a heck of a lot more than that. Let me see is if I can like find multiple it. layers. Of yeah, well, every individual finger, every every extremity, every part of the person was wrapped. And not only was there wrapping placed on it, but you also have a situation where, you know, the the fingers themselves would be individually plated and coated with uh, with guards and protectors. Uh, you found the situation where the, the body was actually, you know, painted on to recreate the likeness and features of the of the individual. And, you know, sadly, I can't find a picture of this. And I'll, I'll show you later, but it, it's really incredible. The mummy that I'm referring to is a mummy from the British Museum. He was found with, what was it? It was something like 200 yards of linen. I mean, it was ridiculous. He had so many different layers that uh, when they were still performing on wrappings of mummies back, you know, about 100 years ago or so, it took them weeks to unwrap him because he was so completely coated. And he was huge. I mean, absolutely enormous. We're talking about a desiccated body, right? But it was it was huge. He was like he was like um, Marlon Brando sized. I mean, he was wow. gigantic, cool. gigantic. And I imagine the extra wrappings is what contributed to that. That's all it was. Yeah, it's all just hundreds of yards of wrapping. It's like three football fields long of wrapping, and that was obviously on on the extreme, right? Yeah. Um, and. Sometimes that's really what it equated to is that the extreme wealth, the extreme uh, affluence of these people resulted in the most extreme mummies. Uh, some of the best preserved mummies in the world are Yu Yun Tayu. 
and Yuya and Tayu, you can you can Google them uh, very easily. Uh, they are the best preserved Egyptian mummies in the world. They were a member of the royal family of, of Tutmosis uh, during that very uh, well-known time period leading just up into the, the time of Ramesses. So King Tut, for example, was a member of this family. And Yuya herself has this, or excuse me, himself has this serene, peaceful look on his face. And you would have assumed that he had simply died, you know, just a short time ago. And so I, I'm going to show a picture of it to Brian uh, real quick. Oh, I've and, seen that face before. Yeah, yeah, very, very well known. And I mean, it is, and just just looking at the face and looking at the, the hair that remains and the attention to detail that's still there, you can see how much care and attention went into this process. Yeah, sure. So it was extremely, extremely important. And then after the new kingdom is when you start to see mummification on a steep decline. And this all has to do with Egypt itself and its wealth beginning to dry up. Sure. So Egypt has now retracted its borders. It's lost a lot of its gains that it had during the, the period of the New Kingdom. It is actually being ruled by outside parties some of the time. It's in a period of, of not-so-good times called the, the Third Intermediate Period. And that would lead into the Roman period, which in, or to the Greek period, excuse me, which in turn would lead to the Roman period. And as you progress throughout that timeline of about a 1,000 years mummification begins to lose a lot of its, um, I guess you would call it art form, more transactional. Uh, it becomes available to just about anyone, anyone who's wealthy enough to afford it at that point. And as, as such, the mummifiers themselves would economize their techniques. They would use less expensive materials. They would take less time doing it. And the mummies themselves began to, to decline in their quality. But it's okay, because those mummies that are left to us from the earlier time periods are exquisite. Sure. Yeah. And I know it sounds so strange to have someone so excited talking about mummies, but no, that's okay. they really are amazing. They really are absolutely well, gorgeous. This is very appropriate because since Halloween is around the corner, and we'll do a Halloween episode next week, but since Halloween is very much a celebration of remembering the dead, not to be confused with other holidays that are now associated with Halloween, other yeah. rituals that are associated with Halloween, this is a totally appropriate topic. And you mentioned going from the Egyptians to the Greek periods. Now, I have a question I've been meaning to ask you, which is, uh, I assume this was Alexander the Great who mm -hmm. helped conquer this part of the, uh, Egypt? That is correct. The, the conquest of Alexander included Egypt, which was his, his greatest prize. Yeah, there is, a, um, there is a story that, not a story, a little factoid about his life is that when he was, he was embalmed using, being, uh, with honey. Is that, is that true? Absolutely. Uh, from as far as we know. Remember, the remains of Alexander have never been discovered. According to the records of the time, he died in Syria, but was reburied in Egypt. His remains were brought to Egypt, mummified, and then buried in, in the customs and of the time. And why Egypt? Was, did he like that country the most? or Actually, the country liked him the most. country liked him the most, okay. <laughs> he had, even though he was a conquering army, he had prevailed over a far worse uh, foe who was in charge of Egypt at the time, and so they, they, they were very welcoming to his, his arrival. And, you know, the Greeks had a lot of trade going on with the Egyptians for hundreds of years before this. And so it was not um, uncommon to see travelers from that part of the world. And this is when Egypt. you start to see those. This is what might have been around the time that the Rosetta Stone was written because of the heavy Greek influence. Uh, or, uh, yeah? A little bit before that. Yeah, a couple, about 300 years before that time. Yeah, but in that, in that, that well, same. It, yeah, within the era. same time period. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah, Very absolutely. Cool. If we ever find his body, we'll be able to prove it. Yeah. Now, well, were there any other notable examples from history where honey was used as a preservative like that? Not that I'm totally aware of. I know that it has been included in 
lots of different uh, lots of different uh, techniques for mummification in other places beyond Egypt, but not as a primary source, not yeah. like it is in the myth. Were there any other sap-like items? Since you mentioned, we mentioned myrrh earlier. Well, the bitumen that bitumen. I was talking about, which is the origin of the word mummy, right? Yeah. The mumia. Yeah. Uh, that that is also very sap-like. And an embalming fluid that you just rub on the skin, basically. Yeah, pretty much. It's a coating that would be placed. Resin in Egypt was also used. A resinous. Uh, material which gotcha. was also used in fact that's where you get a lot of that really kind of ash gray appearance it's not so much from the desiccation part, yeah. part which is a part of it but also from the from the resin that was applied right. some of the mummies in egypt have almost kind of a shiny uh coating on them and that that's the resin that we would talk about right in that, in that part of the world and so now i have to ask because really it sounds like just the implication you're giving me is that once we really get into the common era mm-hmm we don't really see much embalming happening until, like you said, the late or the 19th century, basically. Yeah, mo- most other mummies that you're finding from around the world at that time are natural forms of mummification. Gotcha. Uh, and I mean, there's a few pretty notable members of that as well. And actually, I know that we kind of, lo- I definitely want to talk a little bit about the, or I want to talk a lot about modern attempts at mummification and, and its implications we'll on, get there. on society. We'll get there, yeah. But I actually want to jump back in time a little bit more back to the Copper Age. Okay. And we're on what, now for those who don't know the timeline that well, what time of, is this? So Copper Age in Europe, anyhow, is what I, I kind of want to focus on, which is around 3300 BCE. Okay. okay. Well, but what were they doing? So they weren't doing a whole lot with mummification. In fact, they weren't doing anything. Yeah, However, the, in the, ground. the environment sometimes captured a few folks from history. And I literally mean the words capture. Uh, have you ever heard of Otzi? No. I might be mispronouncing it slightly. I've heard it pronounced so many different ways. I'm, I'm sure I'm saying it the, the non-Austrian way. But Otzi is a, also known as the Iceman. And the Iceman was a Copper Age... Uh, individual. We don't know exactly what his role in society was, but it was pretty high up. He was apparently very wealthy. Oh, he was he froze to death, right? He froze to death, exactly. Yeah. Uh, on the border just between now what is Italy and Austria up in the Alps. Um, he was there for some reason. He had suffered a horrible injury, a, an arrow wound in his shoulder, in fact, in the back of his shoulder. And that had led to his uh, eventual demise. And when he had died, he fell face down into the snow and was essentially covered with a layer of, of I don't know if you describe it as permafrost, but it was definitely... So but because of the cold weather and because yeah. of that, he didn't really decay. He did, but he didn't decay nearly as badly as, as someone who was just open in a, in a warmer and tropical environment who would have skeletized within you know a couple of months. His body, when it was found, was still recognizably human and had his skin on him with visible tattoos Obviously, his wounds that we can see, the contents of his stomach, uh, we could tell from his DNA, which we've been able to extract and, and, believe it or not, actually get some viable DNA from. Wow. Where he came from, approximately how old he was, and some other medical ailments that he was suffering from at the time. Well, that's crazy. Now, they did this recently with a mummy, too, didn't they? They were actually able to successfully get DNA from a mummy? Yeah, from an Egyptian mummy, they were able to, to core into the bone and then remove uh, mitochondrial DNA. Uh, and we've actually used that to help date certain um, individuals, but more importantly, find genealogical connections. Right. Uh, find out who's related to who. mRNA is the, mDNA rather, is the only one that you get that from the mother. You don't get that from. Correct. Yeah. And it is, the, it is the type of DNA that survives the best through this process and can be extracted and, and is much more viable. Wow. Ha- you get a lot more results from it than you do with others without nearly as much um, decay. Yeah. And 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 mis uh, contamination and misidentification. Right. Wow. 
That's cool. That's really, really great. Yeah, I mean, and Otzi was absolutely incredible because not only was found his remains, but also everything he had with him. The coat that he was wearing, his shoes, the blades that he carried. So it was almost like a snapshot from time. Absolutely. It yeah. was the very first time that Copper Age European artifacts of this type, many of them, had ever been found. Wow. Uh, you know, a, a quiver for his bow. Uh, everything uh, had been found more or less on his body or within the immediate vicinity of his body. It had only been moved and dislodged slightly. And it was a huge sensation. Unfortunately, who found him never assumed that he was this old. Uh, there were a couple of, you know, mountaineers who were there just on holiday. They were uh, Germans, I believe, actually. They were just visiting in the area, and they came across what they thought was a injured fellow mountaineer. And when they approached the body, they obviously discovered that he had been dead for a long time, but they were thinking, you know, weeks or years, not thousands of years. Wow. So uh, he looked that good. That's the thing. He looked like he probably had died a few months ago, and, and wow. his body had been had decayed appropriately. That's, that's remarkable. Yeah. And we've learned so much from Otzi, including how to not, um, (laughs) how how certain countries like to lay claim to anything and everything they can find. Sure. Uh, There was a whole bunch of um, legal going-ons between Austria and and Italy as to who gets the the rightful remains. Now, so this this Iceman is one of your examples of natural mummification. Correct. There are, from also Europe, other examples of natural mummification. Uh, you may have heard the term bog body before. You ever heard that before? I have, but I don't know what it means. So um, there are large deposits of peat uh, that are found all throughout Western Europe in, you know, uh, in and around the areas of, of England and Scotland, Ireland, France, and what have you. And peat is a substance that is uh, very acidic. It's uh, almost completely void of all oxygen. It has no natural, you have no oxygen in it. It's kind of, ex- ex- you know, ex- um, bubbled out. You can see it in like tar pits when those bubbles are coming out. They're forcing out the oxygen, oxygen out that gets trapped in. Uh, and they're in a very, very low temperature environment. Okay. So we find that the Iron Age and pre Celtic and Celtic ind- uh, individuals and cultures in that area of the world at the time were performing examples of human sacrifice. Uh, or in some cases, uh, whom they believe were witches and what have you, and were killing these individuals and then throwing them into the peat, uh, into these bogs. And as their bodies then descended into the bog, uh, it was the ideal environment for, for preservation. Uh, I'm going to show Brian a picture, and this is, a, this is a, a preserved body from a bog. Wow. And why is the skin so dark? This kind of tanning process occurs as part of the of the of the peat itself. You know, it, it itself is black oh, okay. in color, so it stains um, everything around it. Yeah, this looks very human. It looks. You can see the wrinkles in the skin. We've yeah. been able to pull up fingerprints off wow. of bog bodies. That, that's how precise the the skin is preserved. Wow. But what's interesting is the skin is the only thing that's preserved. Everything else inside just went. Yeah, the bone itself is actually uh, liquefied. Because of the heat, or uh, just because of the acidic nature of the of the of the peat, okay. uh, it seeps. It preserves the skin, but ironically, it seeps into the body and destroys everything else, except for the soft tissues. So the stomachs and things of the internal organs, those are oftentimes preserved, but the bone is gone. So it's just like this big floppy, yeah, corpse. Yeah, exactly. Uh, huh. And obviously, the 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 skin is stiff to a degree. 
right? Because of the because of the process. But many of the bodies do look like they have just had their skeletons removed and they've kind of sunk in on themselves. And the bog bodies are really absolutely fascinating. I have a, a very good friend who has spent a very long time uh, studying bog bodies and putting together a lot of very detailed information on it. And I'd love to have her on the show at some point and hopefully, uh, hopefully listening to this, we'll, we'll give her the courage to come and, and join us sometime. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, this is such a big topic, I think. And, and a lot of our topics can be revisited. Oh yeah. And as we get into maybe a second year on, of nerds on history, we can revisit a lot of those topics. Absolutely. You know? Well then I really am curious now, fast forwarding into the more modern era. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, there's one fact that I have to remember, because we're talking about natural mummification, where the environment preserves the body. Yeah. But I can't help but want to talk about those moments where the body preserves itself. In Catholicism, they call it um, a body being incorruptible, hmm. meaning the body does not decay. And there have yeah. been a couple of circumstances, through whatever explanation that we can find, we, we don't have a scientific explanation for it, that there are... Are, uh, one saint that comes to mind is Saint Bernadette, who her body, um, to this day, you can go and see in a glass casket, um, and that's where her relic is. The church is dedicated to her. Usually when you, um, for those who are not Catholic, to dedicate a Catholic church, you have the relic of a saint that the church is named after right. present in the either the altar or somewhere in the church. And it could be as small as a bone. It could be as... A as, fragment of a bone, exactly. As huge as a, as a fully preserved human being. Yeah, and usually, again, it's the saint of who they're... They, they are named. St. Bernadette is a casket because her whole body is there. And it looks just the way it did when she died. It is eerie. Uh, I think he's looking it up right now. Yeah, I want to see a picture of it. Go, please continue your explanation. Um, oh, my God. Wow. Yeah, unbelievable, right? Well, hold on a second. When did she die? She died in the 1800s. And there were no preservation techniques reportedly used. I don't believe so. I believe, the, look up the whole un- incorruptible aspect of it. Because that's freaking nuts. Yeah. Uh, she, I encourage you folks listening to, to jump on your mobile devices or your computer yeah. or whatever you're nearby and, and do a quick Google search for, for St. Bernadette. Yeah. Because and St. Bernadette is a really important saint in Catholicism too because because of her, we have the Our Lady of Lourdes and we have the Lourdes fountains that people go make pilgrimages to every year. Well, I'm diving a little deeper into this. I'm actually seeing a reference to her body being coated in wax, that her face and hands are a wax reproduction, but that her body itself is underneath. Her body itself is underneath, but I, I think that's the only parts that have been touched. Everything else, though, is still intact. My, was not... Well, I, I'm, I'm wondering how, you know, and not to, because um, I'm sure there are those out there who, who believe that perhaps this is this is a part of uh, divine intervention that this is... Oh, yeah, and, and I'm not trying to bring that into discussion either yeah. here. You know, people can believe whatever they want. Right. But the sheer fact, though, that... I mean, think about this. If it was just the hands and the face that had been covered in wax... Yeah. Wouldn't have everything else uh, have also um, started to decay, but yet her body is pretty well preserved. And, I mean, it appears to be as, as best as can be seen through yeah. through the images that I'm looking at. I, I think... And we'll, you'll have to confirm this with me later. And please, if someone's out there in the Twitterverse, tell us. I believe the wax in the hands was put on later as a precaution. Hmm. It was. I don't believe it was during her orig- initial embalming process Interesting. that she went through. Well, that's very fascinating. Because well, wasn't, there wasn't an embalming process. Because I see an image of her at death in 1879 mm-hmm. is, when the, is when the photo is, is credited. Uh, and this doesn't appear to have a, a, any kind of... Um, wax applied to the body at all yeah there you uh, go and at that time i mean she looks like she's very 
you know, well-preserved, but I don't know exactly when that is in relation to her death, so it's hard for me to tell exactly what um, the state look, of the body we'll, is underneath now. But that's it, interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah, definitely. And there are other examples. I can't number any name any off the top of my head, mm-hmm. um, but there are other examples of incorruptible bodies through whatever explanation you want to give it. Hmm. Their body preserves itself. Well, I think this would be a great follow-up topic for the next episode because from a purely scientific standpoint, I'm interested in seeing, one, how very well-preserved the bodies are, and two, why? Why? Of course, <laughs> I want to know why. We, we all want to know why, right? Yeah. Really fast forward it to when we start seeing modern embalmings. I believe, and again, this is just me going off of, off of memory, uh, Abraham Lincoln was embalmed and was embalmed so well that uh, when, they, have exi- when he, they had actually placed him in the memorial, they didn't need to embalm him more after the third time. Like his body is just yeah. set into preservation at that point. Yeah. Well, he went on tour around the United States as right. his remains, as was not uncommon for several presidents of the time uh, upon their death to be taken by railroad uh, across the United States and, and set up for, for national mourning. Right. And of course, the, the double importance of him because he was the first president to be assassinated. So, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it was probably even more significant. more traumatic, more exactly. more more of a need to have that closure for the for the the country to come together. Right. But was it? Would you say it was around that time that the more modern methods of embalming have? Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. Take form. That's when you started seeing chemical treatments being introduced and brought in, um, and that's when the the terminology shifted greatly from, from mummification being mummification to- into. Embalming. Embalming. Gotcha. And pres- modern preservation techniques right. uh, is what you really break it down as. Um, Jeremy Bentham in the 1830s, uh, who was um, the founder of unilateralism, he left instructions for his body to also be mummified. And his head was actually reconstructed out of wax. There was a there was some problems with the, mummif- with the embalming techniques and what have you. But his body is, I believe, still on or was on display at the University of College London uh, in the 1850s uh, and kept on public display in that area there. Uh, And you can still go and and see it today. The head is, like I said, made out of wax, but um, the the rest of the body is still preserved and and remains on display. So then what's changed about the embalming techniques of the 1800s to now? Has much changed? Oh, yeah. I mean, you you were talking about the, the complete removal of all of the blood of the body and then replacing it and running it through with like formaldehyde, for example. And that was not in the original practice. Not, not at that time. There were attempts at formaldehyde, you know, submerging in formaldehyde and the, the initial kind of uh, introduction, introduction of it into the, into the body. But now it's like a, a science plug one hose in, drain the body, plug another hose in, pump in the formaldehyde. And that would do most of the work. Um, and that does a lot of the work because the circulatory system in your body is the perfect conduit for sending all of those preservation materials uh, throughout the entire body. Uh, and then, of course, preserving the skin requires uh, further coatings of these of these materials uh, and chemicals and, and treating them. Uh, and, and Vladimir Lenin, for example, is another very famous right. mummy. You can still go and, and see his uh, embalmed and mummified remains uh, on display. Yeah. Um, I have to mention this, uh, that when a pope dies... In Catholicism, uh, they have to. The Pope has the right to choose whether he will be embalmed or not. Yeah. Uh, John Paul II did not choose to be embalmed when he uh, when he passed away. Um, however, the person whose spot he took was. Uh, they had to move John Pope John the Twenty Third um, from his original spot um, to another part of the Vatican, hmm. and they put John Paul II in his place. But when they exhumed 
John the Twenty Third's body, he looked almost as good as the way he did the day of the funeral. Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty quite powerful. Yeah, modern yeah. techniques are, are really very well done. Uh, there is a uh, what is her name? I believe it is Rosalina. There's a yeah uh, Rosalina Lombardo, uh, who was a young girl who passed away uh, about a, almost a hundred years ago now, back in the 1920s. Uh, her father left instructions for her body to be uh, preserved, and she looks. As if she did when she first died, you know, back a long, long time ago. Uh, And so it is pretty, pretty incredible. And only now, almost 100 years later, are we actually starting to see uh, the remains themselves show any signs of of decay. That's that's insane. It looks like she's sleeping, pretty much. Very peaceful. Very very serene. Just a little girl. I think she was five years old when she passed away. I mean, her hair looks a little matted against her forehead, but that's, aside from that small detail, I mean, it looks starkingly natural. And and just up until recently, nobody really knew um, exactly what it took to to make this possible. Yeah. Uh, But they have, in fact, now uh, discovered the the kind of recipe, if you will, that was used in in this technique. Uh, and I, I have it here. Essentially, it was formaldehyde to kill off the bacteria, alcohol to dry the body, uh, glycerin to keep her from over-drying, uh, and then uh, this silylic, I think I'm saying, I'm probably saying it wrong, acid to kill any kind of fungi that would develop, uh, and then zinc to kind of give her uh, rigidity so that her f- features would not kind of collapse in on themselves so yeah. she would stay the same. And it really is quite stunning uh, now with modern preservation technology because the skin doesn't look touched at all yeah but yet you know they've been they've done stuff to it well you know that the child you're looking at is you know almost 100 years old and yeah. it's pretty pretty incredible uh, i can't remember if it's her or if it's another child who is also very well preserved but i remember hearing a story of uh that person's twin who you know obviously survived into adulthood and then coming and visiting the body uh and then seeing their what they would have, what they themselves looked like as a child, and seeing the remains of their of their of their twin looking almost as if the day they died. That uh, must be a powerful moment. Oh yeah, pretty wow. pretty incredible. Well, you know, you're hitting on something really really good. I'm glad you're bringing in the human element to it because all these parallels are. We are the only species on this planet that likes to preserve and bury our dead, and there's something to be said about that. We we have this fascination with memorializing those who have who have left us and to see the methods that have as they've gone as they've progressed through the ages is really quite fascinating because it does reflect that the technology they had at their time but also um what they perceived was important to remember yeah right the egyptians didn't really care too much about the organs they didn't really care too much about uh how the body looked because they believed that at some point all that was going to be restored by the gods anyway well, I, I would agree with that to a degree, but I, I'd say that the, the act of mummification themselves itself is actually shows how much concern they had for the per, for the the way that the body was was in appearance, because they wanted to be recreated exactly as they were in the living world, as they were in death. Yeah, and so this desire to to keep everything that we had when we were alive, including the, more or less as close as possible the way that we looked. I think is kind of a, a, an underlying force of not just Egyptian mummification, but all mummification techniques and all of this desire to, to remember and this almost kind of this psychological dependence that we have on life itself and not wanting to let go of it and not wanting to let it pass away, but to preserve it as best we can. Yeah. And it's twofold now because there is that 
curiosity that we have now and saying, oh, wow, this still exists. Let's take a look at it. Let's, let's reflect on what we're, what we're seeing. And that itself leads into another really interesting topic and argument that's been going on for pretty much the past 20, 30 years is when it's become very popular. And that is, we find these remains. They are a part of history. They are important. And oftentimes what happened to them, they got put into a museum. And mm-hmm. they're now being viewed by thousands, if not millions of people a year in certain cases. And it becomes a, a big question, particularly in Egypt right now, where there's a lot of controversy. Is it appropriate to display these remains who at one time were not meant to be showed to anyone? They right. may have been preserved, but they were placed inside tombs. Right. They were placed inside burial chambers. They were placed away from the viewing eyes. Yeah. And because it was really the British who kind of started the museum culture, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and to them, it was the novelty of an ancient world that no yeah. longer exists. And now that we know more about that ancient world, the, the ethics behind it are becoming... Yeah. And initially, when that was first developing, there were very, very few considerations to the people who were being pulled out of the ground and, and shown and, and displayed. Yeah. Uh, it was not uncommon in Victorian England for mummy unwrapping parties to take place, in which... You know, upon a, a visit to Egypt, they would literally just buy a mummy that was being sold by a local merchant. They would uh, bring it back and unwrap it in front of all their parlor guests. How weird. Yeah. <laughs> and then the body itself was then oftentimes disassembled and thrown into the fire or ground up and used uh, in the garden. Wow. Uh, in fact, the British, it, when they first came into Egypt, uncovered tombs that were completely full to the ceiling of animal remains animal mummies. The Egyptian animal cults were extremely important, and it was not uncommon for even someone in the middle class to be able to be wealthy enough to have a cat or gazelle or other animal mummified, and what they would do with it is give them as an offering to the temples. The temples were inundated with tons and tons and tons of mummified cats and other animals, and so they just stuffed them into old abandoned tombs up to the ceiling. The British went in, cleared out a bunch of these tombs, ground them up, and then used them as fertilizer and sold them uh, to, to people back in England. Wow. Wow. That's really kind of disturbing, actually. And animal mummies were part of it, but let's not ignore the fact that a lot of human mummies were being destroyed as part of this process yeah. as well. Yeah. It was just not the same consideration for their religious beliefs and, and what was the original intention was to have these people left alone. Many museums, however, will make the argument, well, be that as it may, the bodies themselves have already been disturbed. Uh, we are providing them with a place to keep them safe. And as such, we're providing an educational opportunity for people to learn about this amazing culture and be further enlightened and spread that idea of respect so that when these bodies are uncovered and, and encountered, people will leave them alone. Yeah, it sounds like it'll be a de- an issue that it will be continue to be debated for, for a long time. Oh, I imagine so. Yeah, definitely. Well, this has been a fascinating topic uh, I definitely learned things that I didn't expect to learn, and um, I hope you guys out there did too. Yeah, remember, definitely, don't take our word for it. Don't take your word for it. In fact, go to a museum. Go to oh, I like that. Go yeah. to go find yourself a museum. There are several uh, Egyptian collections in the United States which do have these remains. If you do want to learn more about who these people were and the amazing culture that they belong to, 
Um, the Egyptian Museum in San Jose, for example, is is one place you could go. Uh, the Brooklyn Museum. There's one the, in San Francisco, if I'm not mistaken, as well. The De Young does have a small collection of Egyptian artifacts, but they don't have any any mummies if you want to learn about okay. that practice. Okay. Um, the Chicago, uh, University of Chicago, however, yeah. amazing collection. Yeah. And of course, the Museum of Natural History in London, too. Absolutely. So yeah. no matter where you are in the world, seek out some more information on uh, this incredible practice. Learn a little bit more about your own culture. You know, there's a good chance that maybe you didn't uh, know, but your your culture may have encountered natural mummies or actually perform mummification itself. Yeah, definitely true. And Eric, will you do us a favor? Will you tweet some of the, uh, post some of the pictures that we talked about tonight? Oh, yeah. Great. Uh, already way ahead of you. I'm already saving the links. We're good. Fantastic. Uh, guys, you can follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. And you can reach us through our website at anatomy.com to subscribe to us through iTunes and to email us. And please, by all means, we'd yeah. like to know what you think. Please review us. Yeah. It helps us get more popular and it's out there to more people so they can hear all these neat conversations and join in with us too. Definitely. And please, buy a t-shirt. We've put some really cool merchandise up on the store for you. Um, and we hope you like it. We really do. We think it's some, some good stuff. Eric, thank you again. Brian, anytime. And have a wonderful evening. You too. You too.